This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by three wonderful people. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, and 36 Dingo. It is also made possible by all of my Patreons. And if you want to become a patron, www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition, this supersized edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I have, well, let's see here, uh, Nathan Isaacs of Penny Royal. How's it going? Uh, Taylor of the Green Lion Podcast. Howdy. Chris Ernst. Hello, hello. Uh, Octavian of Strange Dominions. Hello. And Super Inframan. Hello, hello. And uh, Nathan, like we, we talked about you joining us for a roundtable last time we talked, and after I put the show up, People kept saying, why don't you bring Nathan into a roundtable? I'm like, it's coming. It's coming. All right. <laughs> I'm excited, man. When he hit me up, I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm super excited. So uh, this will be just sort of a wandering the road episode. I mean, if anything has if anyone has anything they want to talk to Nathan about, of course, he's he's sort of the new newbie here. But, you know, um, with Penny Royal and stuff, and I'm pretty sure all of you have listened to Penny Royal. So. But oh yeah, great stuff. Also, thank you guys for listening to Penny Road. <laughs> it's, it's a great show. I I was confused because you had sent me your last episode before we talked. And right? it, was, it was a preview, you know. <laughs> and so you just dropped the last episode last week. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm like, another episode of Penny Royal, and I clicked it, and I'm listening to it. I'm like, I know I've heard this before, but I, of course I didn't remember all of it because there's so much stuff there. And I'm going, oh, maybe it's just a different edit. Like what? what is this? And finally I'm going, I think maybe this is the one he sent me. Is that what happened? And finally I had to message you and you're like, yeah, that's what happened. I'm like, okay, good. All right. There, there was a moment though, that you made me question reality. And I thought, Oh no, I screwed up and I uploaded the wrong episode. <laughs> you know, it happens. I don't, I don't yeah. think I've ever uploaded the wrong episode. I think I've uploaded the wrong Patreon episode before. Do you know, uh, I, I have noticed, and I, I'm saying this publicly, this is no offense to the, the gentleman, Whitley uh, uh, Streber, but I noticed a couple of times recently there has been some uh, snafus in the, uh, the the uploads to Dreamland. And really? uh, I cringe whenever I, I you know, in, in, sympathy, in empathy for anyone when that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> uh, you label something right. It doesn't take much, honestly, you know. Bad labeling, uh, just you know, not not thinking about everything you're supposed to be thinking about. But uh, yeah, all right, click on the wrong thing. Clicking yeah. on the wrong thing, yeah. So uh, one of the things I had wanted to talk about in our last uh, roundtable show uh, that we didn't get to was the fact that somebody blew up the Georgia Guidestones. And yes, yeah, so I, I just heard about this fairly recently on the on the Slack channel. Um, I haven't looked too deep into it, so I'm I'm really curious to. Uh, hear your guys' perspectives on same because i don't really know that much i know like what they are and i know what happened but i don't know much of the background or history behind them so who wants to take it 
Well, let's see. I can uh, see what I can throw out there. <clears throat> I think where they they were erected in the early '80s, if I remember right, and it was sort of directions on how to rebuild civilization. And and honestly, and, and pretty pretty common sense ones, honestly, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, very very straightforward stuff for the most part. It's in uh, I think is it four different languages, something like that. It might be more than that. Eight. That was eight. 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 Yeah. There we go. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you've got some of the astronomical alignments on there too, so it works as a calendar and a clock as well. Um, and of course, the the mystery of it though too was who built the guidestones. The person that commissioned them used an alias of R.C. Christian, and that left. Uh, a lot of intrigue around them. Um, it, in light of that, too, there's also a time capsule that was under the Guidestones that I haven't heard much about. But there was no date on when it was supposed to be open, just that it was under there somewhere. Hmm. Um, but uh, there, there's a lot of really good investigative work that people have done to narrow R.C. Christian down to a guy named Herbert Kirsten, I believe. Is that the right name, you I believe that is, yeah. Yeah. I, I always call him Dr. Kirsten, and then there was another guy named uh, Marvin that was around there, too. Right. But uh, he had some very interesting and different ideas. Um, but a lot of the things that kind of brought this together was R.C. Christian's home address was also Herbert Kirsten's. And uh, there were some other kind of unique things that Herbert Kirsten got into that were more around – eugenics and things like that which cast a different light on the more general qualities of where the guidestones talk about building strength and diversity and things um that make it a, a complicated topic in some ways yeah 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 in, in that light the first three in particular uh, items on the guidestones are pretty controversial when you kind of throw in the uh the eugenics aspect yeah and it, he was known to support David Duke and people like that back in their much more high profile days, uh, you know, when he was very out front of the clan and things like that. And so when you start looking at his interest in control of reproduction, it's like, Oh, this is creepy. Um, yep. and so I, I, I get very fascinated by it because to me, it seems like, uh, um, you know, the, the far side of far right politics and some of these things. And then to also see people calling for its destruction. Then I'm like, I think you, some of those people may have more in common with Herbert Kirsten than they think they do. <laughs> if that makes sense. The, the thing is when, when you take it, when you take it out of the eugenics light though, like, because it doesn't spec specify eugenics necessarily in there. I it mean, does. most does. of, most of the statements, if someone were to come across them after an apocalypse, they're a pretty, at least a pretty decent send, uh, set of founding principles. And it's weird that he has the, the, the white supremacist ties when he has it in all these different languages, uh, including yeah. not white languages, you know? Right, right. It, it makes it very, uh, uh, you know, confounding in a lot of ways because he talks about developing a one-world language out of that. But, uh, again, the fact that it was obviously made to accommodate a lot of different groups of people, whoever might come across it, uh, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive to the person that Kirsten was in his daily life. Did, yeah. did, did you see the, uh, the post, it was a fake post about, about what was inside the time capsule. No, what was it? 
<laughs> supposedly, which obviously this is all fake, but it was like uh, Playgirl magazine with Burt Reynolds, <laughs> and there were all of these uh, quaaludes. Uh, and uh, like it was a bunch of just crazy stuff but i actually had someone um i had an event this past weekend and a guy came up to me and he was like man did you see this stuff about the georgia guy stones and i was like yeah you know he said they found the time capsule and so he gets out the post and like starts swiping through the photos and i'm like this is fake and then sure enough it it was a fake post but uh i think adam posted something about it on uh on Twitter today, go rightly about, about not getting to get his quaaludes. So. <laughs> but yeah, it was just one of those just, just nutty, nutty things. But I, I do think that this is like the ultimate irony that what, who's the Senator, the woman, or she's not Senator. I'm sorry. She's a woman that's running for governor in Georgia. Well, right. Candace Taylor. Yeah. And, and so she's telling everyone that this is like, say, you know, again, it's like, the second satanic panic is being fomented by all of these, um, yeah. these yeah. folks. And and so here she is saying yep. that, that this is going to open up a portal to, you know, that allows Satan into the world and someone blows it up the day that they turn CERN on. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and it's like the, the same <laughs> right wing fascist extremism and they blew up their own damn model. Yeah. <laughs> Nitha, did you see the stories going around that it was actually a lightning bolt that struck it? So, you know, God must have destroyed it. Oh, oh did somebody there you post go. that? Too? that yeah, that was going around before the, the video was released where you could see the guy clearly running past it to throw the explosive on it. Did they catch whoever did it? They, they haven't yet, hmm. as far as I know. Yeah, and, what I'm seeing right now says no motive has been publicly shared and no suspects publicly identified. So and no arrests have been made. It will be really funny if it turns out that it was somebody that was, you know, more aligned with uh, RC Christian, uh, or who I, I assume it is to to be the 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 gentleman uh, Herbert. Um, and the the movie, what is it? Dark Clouds over Alberton. Is that what the name of it is? That's it. That's it. Yeah, that's the 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 documentary that uh, the. Illustrious Dr. Future, uh, friend of uh, Conspiranormal podcast, uh, put out, God, when was that? that in the aughts? A, that's available Maybe. on YouTube, right? Yeah, I yeah, think so. Yeah. Hmm. I, I'd highly encourage anybody that's got the time to go watch it or even scrub through bits of it. Oh, it, definitely. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a long documentary, but it's they really, Dr. Future, put in the work and talked to the right people. And when you get to the end, it's sort of uh, into the meat and potatoes of who uh, Herbert Kirsten was. It's uh, almost shocking when they start talking to his associates and things like that. Mm. So, Nathan, Nathan, how long do you think it's going to take before a Penny Royal uh, connection pops up and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, you know. <laughs> uh we we were talking about it earlier. I just I did an interview with somebody, and they were they were talking about uh, some of the connections. Um, and and I've been watching some of the Doctor Futures. He's from Kentucky originally, right? Uh, Doctor Future. I, I think I so. Do not know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think he's from Louisville, and then he moved to Nashville, uh-huh. and then he, uh, the TV show, or the radio show, you know. Um, uh, 
Uh, yeah, I was trying to catch up on this with the, the actual documentary. I was listening to an interview with Dr. Future earlier today about it. And uh, do they in I haven't seen the documentary yet, but in the documentary, do they actually address the uh, inherent racism and fascism of this uh, Dr. Kirsten? Yeah, I believe so. I believe that's part of what it's about. Uh, that that's really a, the last 15 minutes or so are very much just like diving into how deep and open those beliefs were for him um uh, including yeah. like his financial support of people like david duke yep. being very happy to walk around and talk about white supremacist uh, superiority and things like that and you know you you start to understand that his on the surface when he talks about uh controlling reproduction you know and, and advocating for you know birth control and all these things it it by the end of it it turns into you know uh weeding out people that are not superior and yeah. that's my trying to control births it, right it, isn't it crazy that this has happened the week after the roe versus wade stuff right yeah well it's, it feels like everything's just kind of ramping up tension wise yeah. right right well, I, I will say there is this Kentucky Kentucky connection. The whole eugenics, the the eugenics movement in America really began in Kentucky. Um, you know, we talked about it in the second season, stuff, but um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Wycliffe Draper of the Draper family. Um, they were the largest uh, s- slave owners in Kentucky, and the family's like one of the the grand old families of. Uh, of the South of the Confederacy, I guess, but, um, they had a vast fortune and Wycliffe, Wycliffe Draper had, uh, flown to Germany and prior to world war II was one of the main funders of eugenics, uh, research in Germany and then came back to, uh, Kentucky and about 10, 15 miles from Somerset, uh, to, to, um, a place called Berea, and gave the college money and the stipulation was that they would uh, engage in eugenics research and that everyone at the college had to be white and uh, pretty crazy stuff though. But, but so then later on the cloning movement, um, there's a guy in Lexington, Kentucky, he was affiliated with the group and the Drapers, uh, you know, decades later um, and some weird funding between eugenics and cloning and, uh, yeah, it's a weird, weird, sordid history here in Kentucky. That's fascinating. I, I do think we're going to have another reckoning around this topic uh, as we get into more of uh, being able to manipulate DNA and everything else when it comes to the health of, you know, what's my child going to be like when it's born? Yeah. Uh, you know, it starts with making sure they're not predisposed to diseases, but then it turns into, well, you know, could I do something? Could we do something, you know, medically that would contribute to uh, more physical health or mental capability or whatever else? Oh, it's certainly going to go that way. Yeah, and, and so that's just going to be well. This is going to be an on. Well, all these things are ongoing discussions. You know, we 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 know the right answers, but we have to revisit the topics over and over because the circumstances change. Yeah, it's the whole transhumanism uh, thing too. It is. It is. Right. I'm curious what kind of uh, adverse effects those types of like genetic modifications might have on people yeah. like in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, isn't that the, well, one of the, 
the theories about the the grays is that they have worked themselves into a genetic bottleneck where they yes. can't reproduce anymore. So, I, yeah, that's been the part of several mythologies. I think the first oh. one that comes to mind was that crazy. Uh, what was it? Dan Burrish. Do people remember him? No. Um, okay. Dan Burrish was uh, uh, this guy that I think he became famous through Carrie Cassidy and oh. the project Camelot stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm digging, you know, back before some of you might have gotten into this. Uh, but yeah, and he, he had this whole thing where, uh, what were they called? They were called J rods, I think. Um, uh, and they were, they had gotten to the point of genetic, uh, like manipulation or, and it was a whole timeline thing. Like, you know, are we on the, the A, B or C, D, A, B, C or D timeline? Uh, and these, the grays were coming back, uh, to these J, uh, called J rods to try to shift us to the correct timeline um, Dan Burrish ended up being just like a janitor. He didn't work at, you know, any of these places that he said he worked. Uh, of course. Deep in the desert, right? Yeah. Well, Sorry, I have dog wars going on behind me. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. The, uh, and Cat, and, you know, the Project Camelot stuff, like when I initially found it, I was, I was looking at specific interviews, but the more I looked into it, the more I was like, oh, well, this is garbage. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. That was something that like I saw as it was unfolding, uh, just because of how long I've been into this stuff. And it's 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 weird. Uh, and Bill Ryan was the other guy that was involved in that. And there's some sort of famous people that have come out of that. Uh, I think that that sort of whole scene really influenced the Gaia, yes. like New Age crossover in this really big way. Uh, and was a big part of sort of the, I mean, along with the 90s zine scene uh, of that crossover between, uh, that particular crossover between New Age and like 5D consciousness expansion. Right. You know, Blue Avians. I'm <laughs> conflating a lot of stuff. But. <laughs> um, the, yeah, I, I had originally found her because, you know, like Graham Hancock and stuff were going on her show. And that, you know, when Project Camelot started, there weren't a ton of paranormal type of things out there as far as like podcasts and stuff go. No, that was one of the, yeah, particularly in on the web. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I'm, yeah. I'm lucky to have started when I started because it was after I started that suddenly it just became like everyone has a podcast, you know. I think definitely Coast to Coast fed into the, all of that Blue Avian stuff too. Oh, definitely. Oh, absolutely. You know? And then it became, you know, it's just like, what's up with Gaia TV, you know, like, but, uh, but, but obviously, uh, it's so tied into the, the whole coast to coast crowd. You know? Yes. It, it's uh, all about whatever you can exploit out of, you know, the crazy stuff. Dude, you know? I did, I, it's a tangent, you know, I did coast to coast for penny roll and, uh, it was, it was a disaster. And it was just terrible. Like the, I wasn't allowed to, you know, you can't use a, can't use a cell phone and they want you to use, or you can use a cell phone, but they don't want you, you have to use like a landline or cell phone. I couldn't use Scott, Scott. I couldn't use any of my professional recording equipment. Which you is know? crazy. Right. And I'm like, I can easily pop this in. They're like, nope, oh. nope. Gotta, gotta call us on a cell phone and have a backup. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So I called and, and I said, is it, does it sound okay? Should I switch to different? And they're like, it's fine. And it was terrible. Right. But uh, but after I did the show, 
all of these people accused me of of, mur- of being involved in the murders that happened here in 1994. And <laughs> they, it was the that was the bloodbath in the comments, man. And uh, people were like coming at me, and I'm like, I was 14 years old. <laughs> so, so you were a, you were a young serial killer, yeah, right? <laughs> but, but it just made me realize that the coast to coast. Which I love Coast to Coast. You know, I grew up on Coast to Coast. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And uh, and still listen to Coast to Coast. But it, it was just one of those things where I was like, man, this is a different crowd than the podcast, that, the community that we're all sort of a part of, I think. Um, yeah. That they're digging into this stuff. Like, it, it just was a totally different vibe. And and people were not, not willing to look deeper into anything. It's the whole, you know, thing we talk about. It's like conspiracy without theory and conspiracy with theory that Michael Hughes was talking about, you know? Right. Yep. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So you may have to tell us all about the, the murders that you got uh, accused of just for people that aren't familiar. Nathan. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I mean, that was the thing that kind of got the whole penny Royal thing started was the, you know, I'd come down here with my wife. She's from Somerset and we moved, moved back here and, um, all these people had these signs downtown uh, in the town square that said, you know, you did it. And it was pointed at the, the, uh, the mayor's office and the sort of the city council building. And so when I asked my neighbor about it, they, they revealed to me that there were these, um, murders in 1994, very high profile murders on the 4th of July, right? Um, the Linda Gibson and Cody Garrett, um, she was 20, I think 20 years old, 21 years old. And he was four years old. It was her half brother. And they were last seen at this gas station, like a half a block from my house, right? Where, where we moved to. And, uh, that in 1994 on July the 4th, they were seen getting into this very prominent businessman's car. And then their bodies were found three days later on July the 7th, um, in a hedgerow, um, and there are various um, various stories about the the circumstances of how their bodies were found. But suffice to say that part of them were in the city limits and part were outside the city limits, yeah. which caused this conflict right between the the corrupt sheriff and the police department. <laughs> and uh, but the crazy thing is that the supposedly and this is all you know purported you know I don't want to get sued for saying some of this stuff, but. Um, the driver was the driver of this guy named C.K. Cundiff, and he's the guy that built the pyramid in downtown Somerset after he went and climbed the Great uh, Pyramid of Giza and had a vision that he needed to come back to Somerset and build this. It was uh, to commemorate the 200-year anniversary of America also, right? It was in ni- 1976. And there's an all-seeing eye. There's all kinds of crazy symbolism all over the thing. And he dedicated on July the 4th. And July the 4th is when these kids were uh, went missing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the the car that they got into was driven by C.K. Cundo's driver. And then three days later, that same driver drove the parents of the victims to where the bodies were. And uh, they've never been able to pin it on the guy uh, but uh, and the FBI have been investigating it, and Dateline did a story on it, you know, for the 25th anniversary of it. But uh, um, yeah, it's just one of those strange things, you know. It's it's uh, 
it definitely has weird occult overtones to yeah. it. Um, and the guy's name, too, is Clinton Kennedy Cundiff, but he was born well before there was ever a Clinton or a Kennedy president, you know. And this, this, he was a Freemason. He was obsessed with, you know, esotericism, uh, the weird symbolism of July the 4th and July the 7th. So, anyway, I brought all this stuff up and people were like, <laughs> You're you're the murderer. <laughs> yeah, how how does that work? How does that connection get made? Uh, I was nervous. I laughed a little, you know, at the wrong time. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, it was coast to coast. I was nervous, you know. Yeah. Telling the story and uh anyway, but you should read the comments on the YouTube page sometime. It's it's pretty uh it's pretty graphic. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. I mean, coast to coast pushes toward the lowest common denominator. Now, that doesn't mean that people like us can't enjoy the show sometimes, but they they're not really interested in figuring any of this stuff out. You know? Yeah, no, there wasn't any. You know, they're just not they're not going deeper no. into it and questioning any of it. You know, you know, the guy that blew up the Georgia Gaststones was probably you know not looking any deeper than what. You know, that lady running for governor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because you mentioned the new satanic panic. And on the other side of things, you have the satanic temple pushing for, you know, all our, our rights and stuff for all this different stuff, separation of church and state and all that. And, of course, they're, they're using the satanic imagery behind it, which is just inciting the other side that much more. There's a... Uh online sort of i guess you call him an influencer or a personality or something that calls himself satan mm. and uh he wears like a little satan mask and everything and he pretends like he's sort of like the director of hell <laughs> and oh, there you go uh, yeah you, you gotta check him out uh I, I think a lot of places he's s the number eight and then in but uh he'll talk about like well of course i support this but you know here's the thing whoever i side with on this it's a bad look for them so, <laughs> um, there's also someone I know he's on Facebook. I think he has a YouTube channel who's, who just goes as God. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's right, really right. Are these, are these the same people that have those names on Twitter? The S A N and, and God, God has the, the South park image. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. so. The, the Twitter one is the S A N guy. Yeah. That's the, yeah, okay. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he makes some, some good commentary here and there. Uh, and if anyone hasn't seen the the documentary on the Satanic Temple, it's it's very very well done. I don't remember what it's called though. Have Hail any... Satan, I think. Yes, yeah, that's it. Hail Satan. It's it's. A... I started to watch it. I don't know why I didn't finish it, but I need to finish it. It's really interesting when they talk about how they had to kick one of the the women out of the Satanic Temple because she was too extreme. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 and you're like you're too extreme for the satanic temple i mean i guess that's bragging rights yeah, yeah. That, that is definitely something oh my gosh i can never get uh get it right but i know so the satanic temple they're not they're like an atheistic movement they all, don't actually all, believe. All, all satanism is like right. unless, well, there's another I, one that is a theistic movement that actually believes in a very literal you mean isn't there a, it was, isn't that the split? I, yeah, somebody's going to be screaming because I, I don't know my history, but uh, there's LaVey, but then is it the temple, is it Set? Is it the Set? Temple of yeah. Set? But is that? I, it's not the Temple of Set. No, it's, okay. It's a new one, and I can't remember. It's not oh. the Church of Satan. I have to look it up, but I know that well, there's, in the current nomenclature, there's two big groups that are like 
just called Satanists, but one okay. is very theistic and one is very atheistic. So, Got I mean, it. in order to worship Satan, you have to be Christian. Like, right. Satan is part of the Christian pantheon, so you can't be, you know, uh, uh, Hindu and worship and, Satan because Satan's yeah. not part of that, you know, like... It, and it's, not not even and sort of arguably not maybe not really even part of the Christian pantheon. I mean, yet to get into like what the the word Satan, where it comes from, and the right. conflation with Lucifer, and the conflation then with Pan oh, and absolutely. Baphomet, and Baphomet well, being of a corruption of Muhammad. You know, it yeah. gets really to say that like Satan is Christian. It's it's it's. I, I think it's like uh, it's one of those things that a lot of people think historically it's always been there. Sure, um, sure. But you could you say know? the same thing about God because like uh, El and Elohim are part sure. of the, the Canaanite pan- yeah, pantheon, yeah. and sure. right. all those gods got lumped in together to create the Abrahamic God. But those all started from a polytheistic pantheon. Yes, sure. They did, and then you ended up with a situation where even though you believed in that God, you knew there were others, they just weren't your God. Yeah. Right. right. The and, God thing, it just doesn't track. Yeah, and, and El had, what was that, uh, what was his wife's name? Or his female aspect that got sort of omitted after... I'm I know to what you're talking about, I can't remember the name. Yeah, yeah it's not Asherah, it's... Uh, oh, no, I, I, I think it is. Yeah, Isn't I think it? it is too. Yeah. Oh, okay. It is. Yeah, I think I think you got it. There's also other earlier like monotheistic religions like Zoroastrianism. Sure. And, um, mm-hmm. What is the, what's the the uh, the pharaoh that wanted it all to be um, a monotheistic oh, thing, and then he got Cyrus. Yeah, Cyrus. Wanted, no, no, yeah. that's not monotheistic. No, no you're you're thinking of oh, what Akhenaten. is it? Akhenaten. Akhenaten. Yep. Akhenaten yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a mess. But the and, and, it, and you figure Satan starts out as like the opposer in the Bible. He's not named Satan. It means adversary. Yeah, adversary, opposer, uh, and like Baphomet was the symbol of the Knights Templar. It was not a satanic symbol un, symbol until they until the Church turned on the Knights Templar because they had too much power and money, and then they turned their symbol into you know a satanic symbol because they needed to get rid of them. Yeah, and conflated with things like Pan and right. and other, you know, right. uh, What's thing? I have a friend who's very Catholic, and uh, I tried to get him into, like, he, he thinks that a lot of the grimoire stuff is um, uh, heresy, is, is, mm. is blasphemous. And the reason he, he hates it so much is because in most of the grimoires, specifically the Grimoire in Verum and the Sworn Book of Honorius, which was uh, supposedly written by a pope, don't know if that's true or not, but the um, hell is controlled by a triumvirate. It's uh, Lucifer, Satan, and Beelzebub. And then in some grimoires, it has it as Astaroth, Lucifer, and Satan, and then others. Uh, so I've always been interested to see where that came from. Huh. So he, he feels like that's heresy? Yeah, because it, it goes against the the, uh, the canon. Oh, okay, gotcha. As, you, know, say, you know, hell is ruled by one figure and not... Okay. Yeah, I mean, when when LeVay and uh, Tim Renner ha- told me that LeVay actually stole most of his stuff from someone else, but I don't remember who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something You're the Red, right. I can't remember his yep, name. Yeah, um, But I mean, LeVay's system was atheistic. It was almost like a sociopolitical system. Yeah. Uh, it was like libertarianism with, uh, with really cool uh, graphics. <laughs> yes. Super edgy. Yeah. And uh, you, you, could, you could extend that to, to Crowley. 
uh, you know, some of his ideas w- would look very atheistic in uh, today's nomenclature with everything being more of the psychological model than anything spiritual. Yeah, and, and again, he had that libertarianism sort of uh, bend to his, his ideas as well. Right. I think that's definitely true for some of Crowley's earlier stuff, but there are definitely aspects of his writing that verge on even the monotheistic in, in some ways. Right. I mean, I think the, the in Thelema, there is the Gnostic Catholic Mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, he, yeah. was, he was raised in that Christian sect that, that I forget the name of. Uh, the the, the that, Plymouth Brethren? That's it, the Plymouth Right. Yeah. And, I mean, that's they were extremely uh, fundamentalist. So, I mean, all that stuff was there in his upbringing, I, and I don't think he, you know, even though he rebelled against it, I think it still formed a lot of his base ideas. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and real quick, uh, Octavian, just some cursory Googling. Um, I'm just finding uh, theistic Satanism. I'm not yeah. finding any other kind of name for it. It just seems to be a common term. Also, traditional Satanism was lumped in there, too, although I don't know that that's accurate. Yeah, I'm not sure which one. I just remember there being a, a group back like uh, like probably five years ago who really did not like being called the Satanic Temple because they were atheistic and this group was theistic and they were very adamant about keeping that as a, the part of their identity. And it wasn't Church of Satan, you said? No, because no, okay. that's all very atheistic. Yeah. That's all you know, yeah, yeah, self-empowerment yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, there's also Luciferianism, but that's like its own separate thing. That goes into like Gnosticism and stuff yes. like that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Satan. Uh, Michael Aquino created the uh, the Temple of Set. Temple of Set in Kentucky while he was at the you know Fort Campbell or Fort Knox military base. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. stuff. That stuff also tends to verge into some white supremacy areas with oh, some yeah. of the. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. There's a <laughs> there's a story. There is a story too that we uncovered, which I can't remember. This is true though. There's a fake story about Anton LaVey and John Kerry being at a museum together, but there's a real story, which I can't think of it off the top of my head. Cause I never thought we'd venture into this territory of a discussion, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, and it's not anything we even talked about in the show, but Anton LaVey was touring. Um, I think it was Fort Knox or it was one of the ancillary museums I think maybe a, uh, just a like a military, like a tank uh, one. And there was a pre- – I can't remember which president it was, was touring it at the same time. And mm. uh, there – I mean, there's the, we found all these news clippings where they shut down the place. And the two of them took the tour together <laughs> with the Secret <laughs> Service. Right. I love Interesting. it. Well, I mean, LaVey was sort <laughs> of a pop culture icon of the time oh yeah definitely what's that anecdote about like uh john uh uh jacques valet and i mean michelle and uh anton levey hanging out at uh valet's house in san francisco and some some something about watching the black pope play donkey kong with his daughter <laughs> that's awesome yeah, that is really awesome. Uh, I mean, the, the the Satanic Temple changed a lot of that sort of selfish sort of stuff that Anton LaVey put out there, which I, I approve of highly, getting rid of that yeah, stuff. They went way more like for the people kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch them do things like talk about uh, accepting people for who they are. You know, like they're not trying to make yeah. other people Satanists. It's like, you know, you're free to believe who you you know what you want, but leave other people alone. And then you have the the religious people being like, you need to shut up. And it's like, but 
Okay. <laughs> I I've told this story a couple times on my show, but like when I was a teenager, you know, like I'm like very immersed in black metal and you know extreme metal, and that's just you know Satan across the board with yeah. obviously yeah. some paganism in there. And but the when oca- I, and and the occasional Christian black metal band. Oh yeah, the white metal. Yeah. But uh, when I was, you know, 13, 14, really wanting to get into magic, that was what I was exposed to was Satanism and, and left hand path stuff. So I would go to these shows and I would go up to someone who maybe had like a, a pentagram necklace or an inverted cross necklace and be like, hey, do you like practice left hand path stuff? And like, yes. I'm like, well, could you like show me? Because I don't know where to start. I'm very confused. I'm young. I just want to get into this. Well, if you don't know, I can't show you. And that <laughs> turned me off completely for years. I just I hated that attitude. Because they had no idea themselves. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. But, no, that is a tenant in a yeah. lot of left-hand path stuff is like, you know, you have to find it yourself. If anyone shows it to you, then it's not uh, valid, basically. Right. Interesting. Yeah, but those I, guys, I, those guys just didn't know, and they were just being cool yeah. about it. You know, it's all yeah. image. That that always seemed like the older kids in high school. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. I. Like I, we probably all had that experience at some point. I think that's a universal part of uh, absolutely people like us. <laughs> I, I don't know enough about like left hand path kind of stuff specifically, but. Um, in general, I guess with like magical topics or the esoteric, I've always found people pretty open to sharing. Um, for the most part, I mean, there you know there are some people out there who are either they don't know and they're just putting on an image, or uh, they're super secretive about what they're doing or whatever. But a lot of the times, at least in my experience, people are pretty open. So I was kind of surprised to to hear that Octavian when you um, whenever I'd first heard you mention that. Yeah, not it terribly was just- surprised. But. Yeah, it was because like I I kept getting all these people who um, were on the show and I've been into the occult since I was 13. I've been the occult since I was 12 and I always got really jealous because I just remember being that age trying to get into the occult and my only real exposure to it was the left hand path. And so I had that experience and it totally turned me off to actually ever trying it. We we went into this quite a bit in the last show, uh, the right and left half path thing to, to the way I've always understood it. Right hand path is abstinence with life and left-hand path is indulgence. So a, a right-hand path mystic is one who withdraws from life and material belongings and, and focuses just on raising consciousness and rejoining whatever. I mean, whatever path they're, they're you know looking to do. Whereas someone on the left-hand path doesn't reject the world, but actually you know indulges in physical stuff while also trying to attain that higher state of consciousness. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. Okay. So the reason why I asked this is because, and I'll just give you like a scenario and see how you uh, react. So let's say somebody does a right hand path ritual with the full abstinence, fasting, praying, Mm -hmm. you know, making a circle with the names of God. He summons a chthonic spirit or they, and uh, then asks the, you know, charges the spirit with killing someone, even though they went through a right hand path system, does that make them a left-hand path because of the objective no. ritual? No, the right and left have nothing to do with with what you're doing. It's how okay. you're doing it. Okay, all right, I understand. And and even like if you use terms like white and black magic, I mean, I, I believe Crowley was the one that defined white magic as anything that is focused on communication with your holy guardian angel. Black magic is anything that's not, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's negative. It just means it's not focused on that one pure spiritual pursuit. It's know? interesting that there are such like there's such a dichotomy between these terms 
But I guess the more I look at it, the more I think about this type of stuff, I see a lot of vagary. Oh, yeah. Like, I see, yeah. you know, intersections and crossovers and, um, you know, like Octavian was just mentioning, people who may have, you know, some motivations in some direction or um, whatever and believe they're doing it one way when they're actually doing it a different way, you know, or whatever. I guess I haven't seen it as being much of the methodology um, so much as, as being involved with the intention. Uh, but I also don't know, and I haven't it's practiced. A, yeah, I mean, that's a tricky, you know, it's a tricky argument, I think, that comes up. And you have somebody like, you know, Stephen, Dr. Stephen Skinner, who would very much say that you have to have the exact type of blade right. Uh, uh, right. with the exact type of metal, with the exact type of, you know, sharpness on the exact moment. And it really is a science. Uh, and I know there's some people like Ren really, you know, b- believes that. And it had, I think, effective, um, you know, experiments with that. Uh, whereas there are, you know, many people that it's really casual, fast and loose. There's no, that, that would be me. You know, yeah. And, 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 you know, personally, I think that you have to think about, it you know where these rules are coming from like if there is a set of rules are you assuming that these are natural laws that have been here since the beginning of time or are these things that are maybe you know as the collective unconscious moves through the cycles of history are we impacting and you, you know putting things out there that then become part of the paranormal world so you know, at some point, grimoires, no, didn't work because there was, you know, they didn't come from anything. There's no natural law to say that they work in grimoires anyway, are just basically magical diaries. Um, so, you know, it's not like they were written by, you know, a particular authority. Um, this is the same argument you can get into about the Bible, but we don't have time for that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, so I think like, you know, This is where the experimentation, this is where, you know, the application of science to the art, I think, can yield really great results is that when you experiment with things, you have to find what works for you. Um, Yeah, that's at least my experience. I I really want to hear Nathan's thoughts on this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know, man. Like, uh, I mean, that's the thing with me with all this stuff. You know, my coming into this, I, I had no background and still have no no backgrounds in magic, right? And so much of what we've been, you know, what we've found in the Penny World Mystery involved, you know, magical practitioners or people that were performing magic of of, of various things. Of course, when I, I I first entered the this whole space of of thought everything was the devil, right? And so right. like it was all it was all devil worshippers that were doing this. And there was some type of satanic cabal, you know, <laughs> doing things, which is ridiculous, right? And whenever we really looked deeper into it, there were various magical groups. I mean, obviously the Bait Cabal um were an active organization, you know, active magical group here. Um and then recently I spoke with um, you know, I when people watch Hellier and they talk about a green man cult and, and this idea that somebody could have been worshiping, um, you know, Sunernos 
you know, it turns out that the Guidonic Order, a group of Welsh magicians, actually did move, um, you know, to Somerset in 2004. And so it's like, mm. but they had a whole other approach to magic, right? And, and, and so uh, somebody hooked me up with them two weeks ago and with, with two former members of that group. And so I was asking them about Welsh magic and what kinds of rituals they were performing in the area. But again, it's like the, what they were doing here is totally different from the magical rituals that were published by the Bake Ball in the Cincinnati you know, Journal of Ceremonial Magic. So it's like all of these different, um, I don't know, there are all these different systems, but they're all obviously aiming at the same effect, right? The same ability to change reality and and for me in in terms of just just the way that i've interacted with this it it seems to me that the the idea of chaos magic makes the most sense that the idea of trying to stack coincidences to cause an effect on reality um seems to be to me to make the most sense in terms of what magic is and that involves the, the, in, in, in the Osirai, we've talked about this, the decreasing of randomness. randomness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? Did I go totally off topic there? No, you're fine. <laughs> no, that totally oh, makes sense. sense. Yeah, not at all. In, in fact, Nathan, like, I, I relate to that a lot because I had a, a mentor I grew up with that was an artist obsessed with creation, and he had quotes from different spiritual figures, mythic figures, uh, quantum equations on the walls of the studio and things like that. And uh, that influenced me like creating rituals and, and what have you. But uh, I never thought of it as magic until I got exposed to chaos magic later on. And uh, it was sort of like, Oh, I've been doing this the whole time. <laughs> I just didn't know that I was. Yeah. 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 And, and then, you know, I've got to meet, um, um, Celeste, um, who's in the show in the second season, um, uh, Celeste Mont, um, she introduced me to a friend of hers in uh, New Orleans, Joshua Madeira, and he uses you know technology, like builds actual ritual circuits, um, but then uses programming languages to interact with these uh, basically sigils that are circuits when you complete them. I mean, he, I highly recommend looking at his work because he, he's taken all sorts of traditional, what we would consider traditional magical rituals or ceremonial magic, and then interpreted them through um, cr the creation of an actual electronic device that uses code um, to, um, <laughs> I guess, create an effect right um and, yeah. he, and he's done a lot of stuff with uh, randomness as well but you know he's the one that really told me the most about peter carroll you know Pete carroll and um and chaos magic and kind of pushed me to look at that but again it's, it's like i don't know i mean <laughs> i still don't know i still don't understand any of it you know and then to have someone like um dan dutton art the artist dan dutton here in town um uh well-known Kentucky artist and American artist, but he has magical ritual built into his artworks, mm -hmm. but not in any overt way, right? Like magic and the principles of magic. And, and again, you know, he's one of the last 
singers of the child ballads, which arguably form a basis for the Wiccan religion, right? And, or, you know, purportedly. But, you know, when you look at the child ballads and when you look at these these sort of like formulas that are built into it, and then he created all these works, it's like he's not even trying to do a magical ritual, but every act of creating art is a magical ritual yes. for him. It just doesn't have a system. Right? Sure. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah. I think in, in a lot of ways, that sort of is magic. It's it's art. Yep. Right? Yep. That's what a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of artists that were doing that. And I say that only, you know, w- with some, a little bit of uh, uh, expertise and that, you know, my graduate degree uh, is not specifically in filmmaking, but it's in media studies. And a lot of the uh, uh, artists that I was working with, um, you know, that I had the fortune, was fortunate enough to work with were sort of from like the 60s uh, art scene and they were really heavily influenced by the magical revival going on there. It wasn't separate, you know, so a lot of the weird experimental art, you know, in this case it was film, and I'm not just talking about like Kenneth Anger, but a lot of stuff out there was really heavily um, uh, like much more in the way that you're talking about how Dan Dutton was doing it, you know, uh, were influenced by this. I mean, for some people might not know, like uh, John Cage, uh, who was a very famous classical composer, avant-garde composer. He, you know, uh, famously uh, did this piece, which was just silence, you know, uh, so the piano player just sits there. Um, and uh, he was a very in- heavily influenced by the I Ching, by the Book of Changes and indeterminacy and uh, uh, ideas, you know, of indeterminacy from the occult, you know, so this this drawing of uh, some sort of muse or spiritual uh, uh, um, uh, possession that is taking over or channeling through you, um, and and it's 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 really cool. I mean, if you look back at it, uh, how much of that was you know uh, subtly part of it, and very much the same way that you're talking about. And I'm sure that Dan was influenced, you know, uh, knew some of these people. Yeah, he he's brought up. Uh uh, cage, yeah. cage before, yeah, um, and and you th- also think about the uh, the situationists, right? I mean, oh yeah, completely the derive. Yeah, with the derive and like this idea of like the drift, but and then then the cut up techniques, right? Yep. The exquisite corpse, where it's like like you just said, it's the indeterminacy of it which allows the space for the magical act. Yeah, to and that's coming from the and that's also influenced by the surrealists who were influenced very much by the prior magical revival i mean this is crowley and uh you know austin osmond spare who yes. were influencing uh you know the 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 surrealists who then sort of gave way to the situationists it's funny i you know i'd love to see sort of a map of magical revivals and uh art movements kind of superimposed on each other Timeline. Yeah, it's interesting because chaos magic. When I first started getting into magic, I mean, my gateway to magic was, and I've said this so many times, um, but a both traumatic and uh, 
religious, beautiful mushroom trip where my ego was completely, it didn't, I didn't have an ego death, but it was an ego dissolution. And, uh, I came out of that like, you know, oh, okay. So reality is not real. Like, you know, nothing is true. Everything is permitted kind of thing. And so I got Lee Null and I got a bunch of Phil Hine books and I read through Lee Null and I tried mm-hmm. sigil magic stuff and it, I don't know, it didn't do anything. I didn't feel mm-hmm. anything. It just didn't really do anything. So I, I go to, uh, condense chaos. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what I found, for me at least, is that chaos magic works so much better as a philosophy than an actual system. Because mm. you know, Phil Hine made a big point about killing your dogma, completely mm-hmm. doing whatever works. And obviously this uh, Anton Wilson thing as well. Yeah. Uh, but that led me to ceremonial magic because for me, I am a very chaotic person just in my own life and I work very chaotically. But what I kind of need to get started with that is... A, is order and a system to break down does that make sense so i need something to destroy first i sure. and then you know and so then i started looking at ceremonial magic and you know i'm uh, a dirty pagan i i you know the, the god stuff it really did not sit well with me but i started to look at it and i started to see the similarities between certain things that like very traditional very old school ceremonial magic were ceremonial magicians were doing and the interactions they were having and then kind of overlaying that with paranormal stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, here's this technique that supposedly works and has been working for thousands and thousands of years. Let's try and use that on the paranormal and see what we get. So I've kind of come at ceremonial magic from a chaos point of view and using it in a chaos way, sort of. Yeah, I I think there's a lot to that, uh, Octavian. Um, I I thought about that a little bit, too, because the stuff that probably would be the most effective for me to try is the stuff that I'm afraid of. Um, Oh, yeah. And so I'm like, obviously, that's probably the most effective thing. (laughs) Like what? uh, Oh, just, uh, you know, if I were going to take on like, you know, angelic magic or, or any of these other things that are outside of the wheelhouse that I play in. But I have. A, a certain set of like, you know, growing up in the, the poor South, there are certain beliefs that even though intellectually, I don't believe them anymore are still sort of just culturally embedded in some part of my mind. Um, and so I think that almost adds a stronger framework for different practices. Do you mean like, like hoodoo or no, no, no. But like a, like a fear of ritual magic or something oh, like that. Because gotcha. you know, I grew up in the yeah. 80s during the satanic panic. And yeah. so, you know, it was like, oh, you can't do this, 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 or this, or whatever. Um, because I grew up in a world where that stuff was very real. You know, the Satan and all this and fire yeah. and brimstone. Yada, it can yada. be very difficult to sort of exercise some of those, you know, preconceived, those deeply rooted things. Yeah. 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 I, I certainly have, you know, come across that for sure. One of the things that re- like that really resonates with me, uh, Saxon, because one of my issues is I have a couple like, you know, I have ADHD, but with that comes uh, this thing called uh, executive functioning disorder, which mm-hmm. it basically means that I, you know, when I am given a task, I need it to be really specific because for some reason I'm only going to probably hear the first part or I'm not going to, if it's multiple parts, I'm not going to connect them. It's a whole thing. But um, looking at ceremonial magic and how strict and how many components and, and aspects there are to it, it scares the crap out of me because it yeah. com- it fl- flies completely in the face of my issue. 
So I basically have to confront that to even begin doing it. I haven't done one yet because I still have to figure out how. And there's a lot that scares me about it. Just like, you know, if this goes wrong, then what do I do then? If that goes wrong, then what do I do then? It's it's very it's a very daunting task. But part of that also invigorates me and motivates me to, to actually really get into it. That, that's really interesting. That anxiety about it, though, is exactly what drives me to try to practice a more sort of organic uh, form of magic, I guess you could say. But yeah, if it, if it drives you, especially if it inspires you to to learn it and to um, to practice it, you know, by all means. Yeah. Also, ceremonial magic for me is a means to an end. It's because I mean, one of my goals with it, and I haven't really talked about this publicly because it's a very half-baked theory, but I essentially want to create a polytheistic system of ceremonial magic because I'm I I want to do what these guys are doing but without the names of God and without these chthonic spirits I want to evoke trolls and 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 gnomes and things like that so mm-hmm. I'm trying to learn the system so that way I can augment it yeah, pick them apart and create oh, that sounds awesome. so you know speaking of like safe kinds of magic or whatever that that we're comfortable with you know, I'm kind of more like Taylor, where I take an organic approach and that chaos magic idea ideas, but and also crossing over with the artist and creator side of this. Uh, you know, I love Grant Morrison, Chris, and I've talked about Grant on the show many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love Jack Kirby, and I, I think Jack Kirby was a, an incredible illuminated magician. He just didn't know that he was. Uh, <laughs> But he had a device he created in his comics that talked to the source of the universe, and it was like a little computer called a mother box that you wore in your body. And so I have a tattoo of a mother box on my side with a little open area for a sigil. And hmm. so if I do something like sigil magic, I'll put the sigil in Sharpie inside of that place on the tattoo and let it fade out. So what does that box look like? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a picture of well, it. I, I, for I mean, listeners, can you describe it, though? I mean, it's a it's a rectangle box. Um, Jack drew it a lot of different ways, but it's got a lot of sort of like zigzag lines with a, a circle in the middle. Um, yeah, Kirby's art was sort of like imagine almost like a there's almost like a Mesoamerican yes. futuristic style to it. Huh. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, you know, I'll drop it in the chat. It's a very that. cool art style. Uh, yeah, really, in- yeah. really interesting. On Google, I'm seeing a variety of different like iterations of its appearance. Yeah, yeah. The um, I'll show. I'll I'll find the image of the one that I have tattooed and uh, send it that's in. So, and, that's so crazy, dude. That you you made yourself a part of the of it that way. You know what I mean? Like that's that's a fascinating device. And like, was it Kirby and Grant Morrison? Didn't they both in um, have interactions with uh, Topic? entities like that they created themselves through their works i don't know if kirby did but grant morrison had a he essentially had an abduction experience Mm, he was uh in i think katmandu in nepal on uh, a balcony and uh he got uh basically you know his consciousness got sucked up by these entities and he was taken through the solar system, and I forget the specifics of it, but yeah, he had a, he had a pretty serious experience, um, and that was prior, I think, to the Invisibles. Is, does that ring ring a bell with you, Saxon? Yeah, it does. I, I think yeah. that's it exactly. And you know, some of the disinfo guides and things out there, he recounts that if people are looking for a place to read about it. 
Um, Kirby, I don't know if he ever talked about anything like that happening, but his imagination was so broad and really dealt with like trying to um, personify fundamental forces uh, within reality and multiple realities that uh, you end up with these sort of archetypal elements like uh, the living tribunal that judges everything or eternity that's uh, sort of like a consciousness of the universe. Uh, but it, it just, I don't know, this stuff is, it's almost its own pantheon that you can just pick and choose from as you need to. Uh, so speaking of sigils, um, since Saxon, you'd mentioned that tattoo, uh, Nathan, you mentioned somebody earlier who had, um, was like doing, some electronic creations with sigils. What would you say his name was? I missed uh, that. Joshua, Joshua Madera. Madera? Yeah. M-A-D-E-R-A. He goes by a different name online, but that's his actual. He's a, oh, is he a student of philosophy down there? I can't remember what the what his actual academic background. But yeah, he, he, he creates these electronic sigils. That's fascinating. I, I'm really interested in that kind of stuff, so I wanted to... Uh, Get that down so I can look it up later. I'm gonna, I'll send you a, I'll send you the picture of some of his work too um, that he sent me because he, it's, I'm telling you, man, it's crazy. Like books that, like when you open the books up, they're like grimoires, but the books have all these circuits through them, and so when you plug <laughs> up yourself to the book, you create, you complete the circuit, and it completes the sigil, like exactly what you, you know, mm-hmm. just it's, it's, it's totally, totally transgressive work you know i mean it's fantastic oh that's awesome like i'm just imagining like running that over and over in the background too or something like that you know well well, yeah so that's something that i've what do you guys think about this because i I mean darian uh west who's my research partner on a lot of this stuff and he's the one that really develops the the software you know we talk through the theory behind it but we've done some stuff with vr um, and and a lot of stuff with Dan Dutton um, with the VR stuff uh, with with the whole pan um, element to to the mystery. But um, and Darian's the one that created this um, ra- sort of randomness detector that's based off of the um, uh, those the the project with the eggs, the Princeton eggs, you know. Um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. being able yep. to detect you know randomness in the world, but also local randomness. Yeah. Um, the idea being that if you do, if you, if magic is real or even the, you know, if something has an effect on reality, if you're extending your will to con to control or have an effect on reality, it's going to decrease. It's going to become more deterministic, which means less, you know, it, there's going to be an in, increase in, or right. decrease in randomness, basically locally. Right. Um, and so we're able to do that. And we've, We've used it with with a lot of uh, of magical rituals, uh, having actual magicians perform the rituals, and then we ran the generator to see if the ritual they were performing actually caused uh, you know that decrease in randomness locally. But that led us to start to talk about the idea of could we program into a VR sequence an actual ceremonial ritual of magic? But then cause that to be run, uh, you know, <laughs> algorithm, mm-hmm. yeah, a million times in a second, right? Oh, okay. Like within, because you would create 
a virtual ritual space, right? So the you would actually still have the circle or or wherever that you're actually going to focus right. the magical ritual, and then through programmed actors, it would create this. But also, you could create a feedback loop so that each um, you know <laughs> basically each iteration of the algorithm would be feeding into the next iteration, right? So it would be this this buildup of information. Oh, uh, that's so cool. But well, I mean what what but people have, have criticized that idea of trying that because they are saying that to us the, the criticism was it requires an actual living practitioner that the I think I think even Ren had mentioned this with his his potential criticism was if you're dealing with spirits, these algorithms and these virtual entities that you've created to perform the rituals can't interact with these other intelligences mm. that are potentially brought into the ritual. Well, I, so that's a very interesting point, and I, I tend to lean that way myself. Um, but I also don't think it's impossible. Uh, I, I think we don't know enough about how magic works on a consciousness level uh, to really say one way or another that we couldn't get a, you know, for lack of a better explanation, a computer to do magic. Um, you know, I guess I would ask if you're talking about like doing it, uh, you know, many times in a second, what would be the intended benefit? Is it to amplify the effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, that would be. But again, I mean, this is coming from having no magical background, you know, in 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 terms of just like looking at rituals and if if you stacked rituals on top of each other algorithmically. But I don't know. I mean, within within the realm of of magical systems, is that superfluous? I think well, I someone sent me. I think it was my friend who sent me an article about a computer that was able to do a. Uh, a grimoire ritual or either write one or something like that. It was really interesting. If I can find it, I'll, I'll post it in the chat. Yeah. If you could send that, I'd be curious to, uh, to look at that. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a tough question. I think when it comes to performing magic and getting magical effects out of the stuff that you're doing and, uh, Soraya always kinds of kind of goes back to Crowley's beware lust for result kind of a thing. I think, I think it has to be, you know, natural. I think you know, and 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 by that I don't mean without electronics. I mean it has to be something that kind of flows. Um, it it can't really be forced because if it is forced, it tends to break down or backfire. At least in my experience. Well, so here, here's here's what I'm wondering. This experiment could potentially show us how much a ritual is important versus the human component. Mm -hmm. But also, if you have the human component focusing on the electronic ritual, almost as an amplifier, so you have the intent, you have the human component, but then you have the computer running the algorithm. The other thing you could do with that is crowdsource the intention to, to a bunch of different people and have a lot of different people focus on that intention alongside the the mechanism that yeah. might, you know, you could, you could do iterations on this and see which ones work better, which ones, you know, don't work. And if you can if you can boil it down to oh okay this is the thing that works the best and we can we can sort of determine for instance it has something to do with human consciousness it has something to do with intention and you know um, letting the intention seep into the subconscious and then moving on or or whatever if you can find out 
kind of what that is, you may be able to um, capture that and um, build a system to make that happen electronically. I mean, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe rituals have created <clears throat> almost like an egregore of <clears throat> activation, you know? And so a computer yeah. could potentially activate it, but you would still need human consciousness to give it direction. Yeah. So, you know, sir, I like what you talk about of whether or not it, it could tell you if having the human interaction as being necessary, you could probably do this a couple of different ways. Because I, I love what uh, Taylor said, too, about having, you know, crowdsourcing the interaction. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we've talked a lot of, on the show about uh, people going camping and things like that and how the act of getting ready to go out into the woods becomes a ritual in and of itself. And especially if you've had a lot of people going to the same place that starts stacking up those rituals that each person does day after day after day going to a park or you know, national forest or something like that. So if you have, you know, a hundred people initiating the same magical program, uh, yeah, that could be something. I, I would be really curious to see what the results of all that were. Well, in a way, uh, Michael Hughes and, and other people who are related to that experiment sort of tried it with, um, with the, yep, exactly. Yeah. The candle experiment. And, uh, um, was it, was it new moons or uh, they were trying to basically, they were trying to do rituals on a regular basis uh, across a large group of people to get Trump out of office. Essentially right, is, right, right, was the yeah. goal. And, and, and stuff like know, that has been done before Mike did it. I mean, that's, that's not sure. a new thing. Yeah. And supposedly they were doing that uh, during world war two, yeah, supposedly yeah, like Dion fortune and uh, yeah. Crowley were. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how effective that kind of stuff is. Like well, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell. And and that's where Nathan's, you know, looking at this randomness stuff is interesting because it might be one of the ways we can tell. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that would be the thing is like, while it's running this, this sub program, right. Or a magical ritual, what, how, whatever the iteration of the, the project or the, the, the experiment is, I love the idea of, of having the different intentions and crowdsourcing it. Right. And, and seeing that in the background, and then what you're always testing for is what consistently drops the level of randomness below the Shannon threshold so that okay. it's it's deterministic, right? It's showing the effect of collective will or individual will on reality, right? Yeah, and if you do that many, many times, you can capture that data yeah. and, and find ways to perform analytics on it and stuff. That actually, <laughs> that kind of brings me to a question I had for you, Nathan, uh, you know, I, I've heard you talk about, you know, doing data, um, data science, you know, data analytics and stuff like that with the research um, you guys have done. I was curious, uh, I, the, over the last year have sort of stumbled into the role of data engineer in my professional life. And I was thinking a lot about this and trying to figure out, you know, or just thinking about what can we do with data science? So what can we do with analytics and with capturing large amounts of um, data on experiments, for instance, that could help us better understand spirit or magic or, or whatever. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, <laughs> it's so weird how we ended up doing this because like Darian and I had started out. Um, we had gotten hired 
how about a company in St. Louis to to basically data mine all the VIN numbers in America and translate mm-hmm. them through uh, to to cross reference OEM numbers on catalytic converters. Okay. <laughs> so um, and so there was a lot of like creating um, sort of dictionaries that allowed the data to, to communicate with itself. And okay. and then we also built uh, a dating app in New York. Uh, for uh, people that were sober. So we're doing all this like data mining of objects and then data mining of people's personalities and then trying to match personalities too. And so anyway, then all the penny roll stuff was happening. So it was like he was already writing a lot of these algorithms, these data mining algorithms and, and using some of this AI tying into some of that stuff, machine learning for, for the analysis that, that we started to try to do it with this and then that's you know we have he built a thing that's called channel bot and it's we use it in our lodge you know the patreon we have in the group yep. and um and so you know he, he used the uh oh, crowley's uh, book um book of for, the law? yeah the book of law as uh, as sort of the codex right and so you can ask a question and and you're supposed to have an intention, ask a question, and then it starts running through every sentence and every word in the book of the law. And then when it drops below the uh, Shannon threshold that's set, it pulls that word out and starts to answer your question. Right. So it's like a a weird uh, <laughs> form of like divination, basically. Yeah. But you but you can use any text, right? And then we, so then we started tying it into record players. So we would like buy a random record at a record shop that's a spoken word record. Then we would put it on and then we would tie it into the system on an old record player, not a digital one. It won't work on that, but on something that just like it powers up and spins and powers down. Right. Mm -hmm. And so every time it dropped below the Shannon threshold and randomness decreased, the record would fire up and then it would speak a series of words that were in response to a question we asked. Right. Um, and so there was a lot of like trying, you know, just trying to, to contact something uh, to, to see if there was, there was an effect on reality. Um, but again, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, so much of, of what we've been doing involved that, but then seeing the work of like Joshua Madera, um, and there are other people too. And especially, I mean, we, when you look at like the CCRU, you know, I know Nick Land was, I mean, Nick Land definitely is a, dis- I won't say he's a despicable person because he's still alive. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Nick Land was pushing some, some very bad, you know, uh, social theories. But, I only know about that guy because of the whole uh, Georgina Rose controversy. If uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, accelerationism is, you know, a pretty bad thing. And there's a lot of like fascism tied into it. But, and there are a lot of uh, uh, sort of occult influencers that are uh, uh, closeted or not so closeted accelerationists. I think. Yeah. yeah. Now, what, what's acceleration? Oh man. <laughs> oh god. Yeah. I don't even understand it. And I like once this whole thing happened about this this girl influencer on TikTok and Instagram getting outed as some kind of neo-Nazi. Like the whole accession, that question came up, and I still don't really understand it. I mean, I've never heard of it. I mean, you know, the accelerationists believe that 
if you can accelerate capitalism through technology, that you can collapse society, and that ultimately there would be um, these sort of corporate fiefdoms formed. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Basically around tech companies run by these technological philosophers who know better through data how mm -hmm. to how to you know push humans away. And then it became part of uh, transhumanism. It mm. gets rolled in there. And and really when the transhumanism stuff gets in there, then the eugenics stuff pops up. Right. Right. right yeah. And it's, yeah. it's very it's very it's a it's a heavily racist philosophy. Yeah. Very white philosophy about the basically trying to get us to where we can collapse the using bitcoin you know there's there's this idea that bitcoin may have been created as an accelerationist you know technology to try to to destabilize the global markets mm -hmm. you know um i mean it's it's weird stuff but definitely the, i mean the ccru when they were before nick land went full-on you know uh fascist kind of stuff uh which again i mean this is arguably fascist in terms of a corporation controlling everybody's lives right in these fiefdoms but um the ccru the cybernetic control research unit and steady plant and i've talked to <clears throat> of corresponding with uh, ron eglash and there are others others that were part of this but they were definitely and this is the early 90s, and before it went off the rails with the cult of personality of Nick Land, they were really pushing the envelope of trying to marry technology and language and programming and coding with magic and with this, this sort of uh, the altering of consciousness through technology in order to get to a magical state, right? Um, and so... It's, it's one of those like throw the baby out with the bathwater things where, um, you know, you, you worry about touching anything that's from the CCRU because of Nick Land. But um, but I think those guys were definitely trying to do the, some of the things that we're talking about. Yeah. And but, but again, it's like what, what we've talked about before. It's it's reclaiming that narrative. Right. So even if there were some white supremacist fascists that were, you know, promulgating these theories now's the time to take those ideas back from them and to recontextualize those narratives and those experiments and do them <laughs> and not marry them to racist ideologies, you know? Yeah. 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 Makes sense. All right. Can everyone stick around for a Patreon? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm good. All right. Because we're out of time. So let's, let's, let's go down the, the list here. Let's start with Mr. Chris. Uh, if you want to see some of the movies that I worked on, including uh, The Hill and the Hole with the wonderful Adam Go Rightly, uh, done by me and uh, the great Bill Darman, you can go to Troma or Amazon Prime uh, and check that out. And uh, you can also see my film Corpse on Amazon. And uh, look forward to having something uh, out this year or later, hopefully. Yeah, so, what's, yeah. What's that going to be? Uh, it's a, it's about this weird podcast, uh, uh, called where the road go. <laughs> All right. Uh, Octavian. You can find me at strange dominions podcast.com. We have a YouTube. We're on all the regular streaming platforms as well. So if you have an interest in magic and the paranormal, come on down. Uh, Taylor. Uh, I'm, uh, doing the green line podcast. Um, just had a, a summer episode come out a couple weeks ago, so that's available. Um, and also sigil arcanum tarot 
And other than, other than that, just hanging around here. All right. Uh, uh, Nathan. Uh, yeah, you can uh, check out the uh, Pinion Roll podcast on any platform or our uh, Patreon, uh, The Liminal Watch. Uh, yeah, we're uh, starting up production on uh, Season 3, and obviously I want to talk to all of you about that <laughs> <laughs> stuff off the air for the show. So Lovely. And, and Super Inframan can be found uh, lurking around various social media platforms, waiting for the sign for him to transform and come rescue people. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would also encourage anybody to be a Patreon of Where Do the Road Go if they are not already. Thank you. Support the, uh, the work and the stuff that you like, people. It's always a good thing. Yes. All right. Thank you all, and we'll continue this in a Patreon conversation. I want to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons. Without you, this show wouldn't be possible. And I especially want to shout out to those pledging $10 or more. Allison Cook, Super Inframans, 36 Dingo, Chuck Shutters, Leanne Sherry, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Crystal Ann Compton, Diane B., Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, J. Otto Bullet, James Lattimore, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Stone Wilderness, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D., and Amber Hall. Thank you all so very, very much. So there's a lengthy Patreon segment uh, that will be included later this week from this show. I hope everyone enjoyed it. A lot of people were asking me to bring Nathan in on a roundtable, and it was already in the works because uh, I had the same thought. He'd fit really well with one of our roundtables, and we will do it again as well. If you haven't checked out Penny Royal, check out both seasons. They're different, and they're really, really good. Also, check out wheredotheroadgo.com because that is where you will find everything related to this show. All our social media links, every single show, back to the very first one in January of 2013. Uh, links to our Patreon, links to donate, uh, Discord, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, um, yeah, other stuff. There's lots of stuff there. There really is. So go check that out. There's a merch uh, store as well for T Public. I'm going to be putting up one, hopefully, for Redbubble as well. Some people told me that uh, Redbubble uh, is a preference to them. And, um, yeah, someone had already bootlegged my shirts on Redbubble. So, yeah, that's cool. We'll, uh, so there'll be official stuff up on Redbubble, hopefully soon. Uh, become a, becoming a patron is only $3 a month. You get extra stuff almost every single week. There's almost always an extra segment to a show unless it's just not possible to do that particular week. And some extra special stuff in between. So you get a lot for that 3 bucks, and it really helps us out here and helps me keep this show going strong. I have not missed a week. 
You have gotten a show every single week since I started in 2013, sometimes more. Also, for those of you who are into metal or heavier or darker music, I do do a weekly show called The Last Exit for the Lost. And you can find it at thelastexit.org. You can listen, uh, you know, weekly. That's also a weekly show. Six and a half hours of old and new music, metal, punk, industrial, experimental stuff, some comedy music, some all kinds of stuff, really. It's it's really hard to, to, to put into words. Uh, but if that sounds up your alley, you can check it out live every week, or you can listen to our extensive back catalog of shows. And we have a live performance space, some of which I've played at the end of this show from different bands. So on a fairly regular basis, we have live music streaming on YouTube from some very, very talented bands. All right, uh, we're going to take you out with an old band from Syracuse. This came out in like 2006. It looks like I just checked to see if there was any chance they were still active, and it looks like they did a reunion show in 2019, but that's it. Um, they were called The Scarlet Ending, and this is a track called Such a Shame, and I'll see you next time. listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. <laughs>